The following audio is from Norris Ferry Community Church. More information about Norris Ferry Community Church is available at norrisferrychurch.org. Let's pray. Father, many of us come into this room as strugglers. And our default position is to doubt your love for us, to doubt the truths of the gospel, to doubt your grace, to doubt your mercy, to doubt your patience, to somehow believe that you regret saving us or that you're just merely tolerating us. So, Lord, by the power of your spirit, I pray that you would break all of those lies, that you would rescue, that you would save, that in your name, Jesus, there's power to break every chain, every stronghold. And so we pray that by your grace and through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would give us eyes to see your mercy, your grace, and your patience. You'd give us ears to hear, minds to understand clearly, and hearts to believe and apply. Lord, would you change us for your glory and for our good. In Christ's name, amen. Well, um, my name is David Ham. For those of you who don't know me or who have forgotten me, uh, I used to be on staff, but now I'm a lay pastor. I've gone off to uh, practicing law, and it, it's great to be uh, with you. But I will say uh, that you guys have a stiff competition with my third through fifth grade boys. Are any of you guys here? Come on. No love. Clearly, I've made an impact in their life. Uh, but great to be here with you. Most importantly, I have uh, tasted of uh, the things we're going to talk about today. God's mercy and his grace uh, and his patience. And so I hope that you get a taste uh, this morning because that's what we're going to talk about uh, together. Um, there's going to be lots of quotes in the sermon, and I would apologize, except I'm not sorry um, I commend these books uh, to you. The first is Philip Yancey in his book, What's So Amazing by Grace? <clears throat> um, What's So Amazing About Grace? He interviewed or recounts a conversation he had with a Christian therapist who had practiced for decades through countless um, counseling sessions. Uh, and here was his takeaway uh, as he boiled down without limiting the physical, uh, the emotional, and spiritual nature of problems. But he said, he narrowed down what he saw in the counseling room to two real issues. And he, he says this. Many years ago, I was driven to the conclusion that the two major causes of most emotional problems among evangelical Christians are these. One, failure to understand and receive and live out God's unconditional grace and forgiveness. And two, the failure to give out that unconditional love, forgiveness, and grace to other people. We hear, we believe, a good theology of grace, but too often that's not the way we live. The good news of the gospel of grace has often not penetrated us to the core of who we are. In other words, here's a counselor that says, after all of my hours in the counseling room, I boil down essentially most problems that evangelicals struggle with to two issues. One, we either don't believe the gospel or we don't live in light of the gospel. Jerry Bridges recounts the same thing in his uh, book, The Discipline of Grace. Again, another very good one, uh, and I commend it to you. He says, restates the same concept in a different way. He says this, 
Justification, which is being declared righteous before a righteous God, is a completed work as far as God is concerned for those who are in Christ. The penalty has been paid and his justice has been satisfied. But it must be received through faith and must be continually renewed in our souls and applied to our consciences every day through faith. And this is helpful. There are two courts we must deal with. The court of God in heaven and the court of conscience in our souls. When we trust in Christ for salvation, God's court is forever satisfied. Never again will a charge of guilty be brought against us in heaven. Our consciences, however, are continually pronouncing us guilty. That's the function of a conscience. Therefore, we must, by faith, bring the verdict of conscience in line with the verdict of heaven. And we do this by agreeing with our conscience about our guilt, but then reminding it that our guilt has already been borne by Christ. You guys following me? A seasoned counselor essentially said most of our problems boil down to our failure to believe and apply the gospel. And Jerry Bridges says the same things in the fact that, yes, there are objective truths about us when we become Christians, that we are justified, that the court of heaven is satisfied, that the God of all creation looks upon us and declares us to be holy, blameless, and above reproach. But here's the thing. There's also this court of our own conscience, what we really believe, how we really operate. And often there's a far chasm between the court of our conscience and the court of heaven. And this morning, what we're going to try to do together is bridge the chasm and have the court of our conscience be in line with the court of heaven as we reflect upon our God of mercy, our God of grace, and our God of patience. So the attributes of God's mercy, God's grace, and God's patience, you could write a 10,000-page book on each one of those things. So why in the world did we combine those three attributes into one sermon? I'm convinced it was partially to punish me. Uh, But other than that, uh, the scripture does combine these three attributes of God together. So it does make sense to treat them together. Just for three examples, you could go over and over again. But there's three examples from different portions of the Bible. Uh, Nehemiah 9.17, But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Are the Psalms. This is all throughout the Psalms. One example, Psalm 145, 8. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Or how about a prophet, Joel 2, 13. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Joel's just proclaimed judgment. And he says, but repent, return to this God who's bringing about the judgment because he is a gracious God. He's a merciful God. He is a patient God. Turn to him. And God's grace, mercy, and patience, not only do they appear in the Bible, so we're going to talk about them, but they also are related in that they are three unique expressions of God's goodness to us. And Wayne Grudem's definitions are helpful in this regard. All definitions are imperfect and flawed. But Wayne Wayne Grudem's definitions are helpful, and so I'm just going to read them to you. God's mercy means God's goodness towards those who are in misery and distress. So when people, when we are in misery and distress, God's mercy, to say God is merciful, means that he meets us in our misery and distress and gives us favor 
and his goodness. He acts favorably towards us. God's grace means that God's goodness towards those who deserve only punishment. In other words, we have rebelled against God and deserve his punishment. But for those in Christ, we get the exact opposite. We get his goodness and his favor. Why? Because God is a gracious God. God's patience means God's goodness and withholding of punishment towards those who sin over a period of time. We've all rebelled. We've all sinned again and again and again. Why doesn't God just smite us? Because he's a patient God. We have a patient God. He's a God of mercy, grace, and patience. And like I said, every story literally in the Bible speaks of God's mercy and his grace and his patience. But don't worry, we're not going to go from the garden in Genesis to the new heavens and new earth in Revelation. You guys would miss lunch. So we're going to narrow it down. We have about 30 minutes, and we're going to drive into Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, and get as much as we can out of those verses and view our God of mercy, our God of grace, and our God of patience. And as we look at these 10 verses, they really break down into three parts. Uh, One, verses 1 through 3, we're going to see our need for mercy, grace, and patience. Verses 4 through 9, we're going to see God's provision of mercy, grace, and patience. And then in the final verse, we're going to see our response after experiencing mercy, grace, and patience. What should our lives look like? So our need, God's provision, and our response. You guys ready? Okay, I'll take it. We'll look at our need. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, this is risky to begin a sermon with a grammar question, but somebody shout out the tense of the first verb in the first verse. Past tense. Now, you guys are quick, too. First service beats you a little bit, but you're right. It's past tense. And I'm not a grammarian, but I have learned when reading the Bible, verb tenses can often be incredibly important. I think we can all agree that the verb tense here is incredibly important because if it's past tense, then verse 1 through 3 is describing something that used to be true of me, right? If it's present tense, then these verses describe something that is, is true of me. It all hinges on the tense. Now, remember, Paul is writing to a group of believers in Ephesus, and so he writes in the past tense, and you were dead. And so these are things that were true of the Christians in Ephesus and are true of the Christians in this room. But the opposite is also true. For those of you who are not in Christ, meaning the work of Christ has not been applied to you by grace through faith, You need to change the tense of the verb from past to present tense. That's a very non-PC thing to say. But it is truth, and it's an expression of grace and mercy for that to be said plainly to you because all of us who have come to be Christians have all had the realization that all of these things were true of us 
and gave us a realization of the need that we had for God's mercy and grace and patience. Lily Giglio has noted that sin does not make us bad. It makes us dead. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here in verse 1. Look back at it with me. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in, where, in which you once walked. Make no mistake, before we encounter the grace and the mercy and the patience of our God, we are dead. Now, that doesn't mean we're physically dead. It means we're spiritually dead. It means the things of God and God and his grace and his mercy and his provision and his salvation and all these great things that we are going to talk about today are dead to us. They are not true of us. They are not real for us. So we are dead without the grace and mercy and patience of our God. One of my favorite songs, if you know me, you know I'm flaky on favorite songs. I have a new one pretty much every day. But right now, one of my favorite songs is by Sovereign Grace Ministries. Check it out, All I Have is Christ. One of the verses I think just nails what we're talking about. They say this, I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy in life had led me to the grave. I don't know if, for those of you here in Christ, if you can think back to when you uh, were living apart from Christ. For me, I've had some time uh, this week to, or a couple weeks to think about that, and I thought back to my first two years in college, which were really what I believe to be probably my last two years being apart from Christ. And man, this hits me on the head. I mean, if you were, uh, I once was lost in darkness, but yet I thought I knew the way, man. I was a 19-year-old kid. I had everything figured out. If you wanted to help me save your breath, I got it. I had it all taken care of, at least externally. But what was going on in the inside was something quite different. What promised joy in life to me, all these, these sins and these things that I were doing, they were actually delivering the exact opposite. Right? And many of us know that experience. Instead of joy and life and fun, these things started to steal joy and life and started to create in me emptiness, hollowness, meaninglessness. That's the point. Without Christ, we're dead. And without Christ, we desperately need his mercy, grace, and patience. But it's not only that. I mean, it's bad enough, right, to say that we're dead. I mean, that's PC enough. Uh, but that's not as bad as it is. It's actually worse because there's three major powers keeping us in the grave. Uh, and these three powers are called the world, the flesh, and the devil. Some theologians being cute call this the unholy trinity. Um, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Let's look at them in these verses. Verses 1 through 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world. So when we're dead, we follow the course of the world. So what does that mean? Jerry Bridges explains it this way. The world or the sinful society in which we live is characterized by the subtle and relentless pressure it brings to bear upon us to conform to its values and practices. And I like this. This is really helpful. It creeps up on us little by little. What was once unthinkable becomes thinkable, then doable, and finally acceptable. 
I, I'm just 37 or 38. I can't remember right now. But I, I, in my short lifetime, what has become unthinkable to thinkable to doable to acceptable in the realm of society is it's pretty remark. I mean, pretty remarkable, quite frankly. And if you're, I'm in a study with Frank Caraway, who's a lot older than I am, and he makes the point that it's even worse the longer, and he's been around a long time, the longer you stretch that out. But that, that's just one power that's keeping us in the grave, and that's coupled with the devil. Again, not a very PC thing to talk about, but a reality of which the Bible testifies. Look at verse 2. So dead people were following the course of the world, but not only that, we're following, look at verse 2, <clears throat> the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Again, Jerry Bridges is helpful in saying, how does the devil keep us in our grave? He says this, The devil or Satan is the ultimate mastermind and strategist behind all the temptations that come to us. Beyond that, he often tempts us directly. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. It's 1 Peter 5.8. So that's pretty bad. I mean, we're dead. The world is keeping us in our grave. The devil is keeping us in our grave. But those aren't our two worst enemies. The worst enemy is yet to come. Keep reading. Look at verse 3. And among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And Jerry Bridges describes the influence of the flesh like this. As dangerous as are the world and the devil, neither is our greatest problem. Our greatest source of temptation dwells within us. It is what the Apostle Paul calls the flesh or the sinful nature. It is the principle of sin that remains within us, even though it no longer exercises dominion. So before Christ, we're under the dominion of the flesh. We have no choice but to follow the course of the flesh, follow the world, follow the devil. But once we become a Christian, it's not like the struggle stops. The struggle continues, and in fact, Galatians 5 talks about a battle or a war between the flesh and the spirit, but we're no longer under the dominion. The point being, before coming to Christ, we're dead, and there are three things keeping us in the grave, the world, the flesh, and the devil. In other words, we desperately need God's grace, mercy, and patience. To the extent we see this desperate need, the more glorious his mercy and grace and patience are going to be right? If we don't really sense the need, they're going to be, okay, these are good things to talk about in Sunday school, but these aren't, they're okay. For example, if you are not all that thirsty and you drink a glass of ice water, it's nice, it's refreshing, but if you are parched, I mean really parched, like hiked for 10 miles without a drink of water in hot sun parched, how good is putting a cup of ice a couple of pieces of ice in a glass with ice water and guzzling it down. I mean, that's about as good as it gets. And that's the point. The thirstier you are for God's mercy, grace, and patience, the sweeter and the more refreshing it's going to be. So in light of our great need, what does God do? And Kevin teed it up well, but God. Let's read in verse, verses 4 through 9. <clears throat> but God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, 
made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. We could sit here for a long time talking about all of that. Some glorious truths in there. In our response to our great need for mercy, grace, and patience, God lavished his mercy on us by sending his son Jesus to taste, not only taste of our misery and distress, but to bear it. On the cross, we read in Philippians 2 7 through 8 that Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Does God meet us in our misery and distress? The cross of Jesus Christ says yes more completely and profoundly than we'll ever recognize. But not only did God lavish mercy upon us, he lavished his grace upon us through Christ. Look at verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. But how did he do that? I mean, he says, we're brought from death to life. Okay, what... How did that happen? We know it's by God's grace, but, but how? Well, it's the reason why Ephesians is a whole book. We don't have everything in these verses. So we're going to go a little earlier in the book to Ephesians 1, 7 through 8, where you heard Matt Chandler preaching from earlier. Ephesians 1, 7 through 8 says this. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and an insight. In God's grace, he brought us from death to life through the redemption that is ours through the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, redemption is a churchy word, right? I mean, we use that word a lot, redemption, redemption. But, but what does it really mean? Charles Hodge, a theologian of a previous era, Frank Carraway's era, uh, <laughs> defined it like this. Sorry, Frank, you're just right in the way. Um, He says this, redemption is deliverance affected by the payment of a price. Redemption is deliverance affected by the payment of a price. That from which we are delivered is the wrath of God. The price of the deliverance is the blood of Christ. If you remember at the end of verses one through three, says, before we encounter God's mercy, grace, and patience, we are, what, children of wrath. That means that we are under his perfect judgment. Uh, wrath, again, is not something that we, we talk a lot about. It's not a very PC word, uh, but Martin Lloyd-Jones defines it like this. God's settled opposition to all that is evil arising out of his very nature. You see, God is perfectly holy perfectly just, perfectly righteous. And we, ever since Genesis 3, have rebelled against an infinitely holy God. And that creates an infinitely large problem 
because we've offended an infinitely holy God. And so the only way that that could be rendered resolved is if an infinite payment was made. But we don't have, and we're finite beings, so we had to look outside of ourselves. That's why God the Father sent Christ the Son to die on the cross to pay the debt, the infinite debt that we owed that we could never paid. He died in our place. But not only that, he rose from the grave, defeating death. Theologians call that the death of death and raised to heaven and secured for us our eternal fellowship and status with God as holy, blameless, and above reproach. That's redemption. That's how we came from death to life. That's good stuff. Let's go to verse 8 through 9, and we're going to go back to 6 through 7, because 6 through 7 is kind of the, the crescendo. It, it's really amazing. But 8 through 9 is driving this, this point home. And Paul says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one may boast. I mean, Paul is making it very hard to miss the point. That is, we're not saved by anything that we do, but only by what Christ has done on our behalf. Uh, Jerry Bridges puts it this way, and this is so important, talking about our union with Christ. He says, God sees us legally as so connected with Christ that what he did, we did. When he lived a life of perfect obedience, it is if we had lived a life of perfect obedience. I wonder if you've ever thought about that. When he died on the cross to satisfy the just demands of God's law, it is just as if we had died on that cross. Christ stood in our place as our representative, both in his sinless life and his sin-bearing death. To live by the gospel then means that we firmly grasp the fact that Christ's life and death are ours by virtue of our union with him. What he did, we did. This is hugely important. If our salvation depends in any part upon what we do, we are hopelessly lost and in a desperate situation. Because if you are self-aware at all, you know you mess up a lot. If you're anything like me, you mess up a lot. And if it only takes one mess up in rebelling against an infinitely holy God to result in an infinite debt, then you're in trouble. But if our salvation depends solely upon the work that was done by Christ, who was perfect in his life and in his death, satisfied the demand that we owed, that is really good news. So that it can never be true of us that God is tired of us or regretted saving us or somehow is just putting up with us. Because when the Father looks on us, he sees the Son And he loves us as he loves the Son because we're so united with him. Our salvation is by grace, according to his mercy and his patience, depending solely upon the perfection of Christ and nothing about us. That's good news. But not only that, I said we'd go back to verse 6 and 7. It even gets bigger than that. Look at verse 6. That God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Just so we don't miss what this is saying, 
He's saying that once we have partaken of the mercy, grace, and patience of God, we are in some very real way united with Christ and ascended with him to the throne room of heaven sitting by the Father. That, that's what Paul is saying here. Now, obviously, we're in this room, okay? So there's not physically right now, but what he's saying is we are so, our union with Christ is so profound that in a very real sense, we are with him in heaven with the Father, that our communion with the Father is so intimate that he can describe us as being there with Christ in the throne room of heaven. If that doesn't blow your mind, I, I, can't, I can't do anything more with that. I mean, it's just unbelievable. But it, even, it actually gets even better than that. Look at verse 7. It said, so, so whenever you see so, you're saying, well, so why did all this that come before happen? So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable, immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us who are in Christ Jesus. Now, the coming ages means eternity, okay? So for all of eternity, why did he do all this? Why did he give us his grace, his mercy, and pour out his patience on us? It's because for all of eternity, what he wants to do for us is to roll out new angles, new aspects, new features, new glories of his grace that are ours, that is ours in Christ Jesus. In other words, Here's exhibit 2,567 of how much I love you and the grace that I have for you in Christ Jesus. Here's 10 zillion, 500 million, you know, whatever, over and over again for all of eternity, presenting us more and more evidence of his love and his grace for us in Christ Jesus. It reminds me of a hike, a 21-mile hike I did in Jackson Hole with my cousin, and it seemed like Every step, literally every step that we took, something new happened. A, a new mountain or a new angle or a new view of the, of the sky or a new lake or a new animal. At one time, a bear almost got us. And it, it, was, just, it was just amazing. It was never boring. It was always new. It was always glorious. It was, it was wonderful. It's why I like New York City. I mean, every, every block you go down is new. It doesn't matter how many times you've been in New York City, right? You always see a new building every step you take. So it's going to be like for all of eternity, experiencing God's grace, his immeasurable grace for all of eternity in new and exciting and glorious and wonderful ways. That's, that's pretty good news. It's a pretty good future. It, it really summarizes up one of my favorite um, sayings about the gospel, uh, that our bad things work out for good, our truly good things can never be taken from us, and our best things are yet to come. So we've seen the greatness of our need. We've seen his amazing provision in, in ways that our, our finite minds really cannot really truly grasp. So how should we respond? Well, one of my favorite fictional accounts of what I think our response should be uh, is Les Mis, um, the story of Jean Valjean. If, you, if you're familiar with the play or the movie, you know what scene I'm going to go to. But I'm just going to read Philip Yancey's uh, re- account of it because I think he does it well. Sentenced to a 19-year term of hard labor for the crime of stealing bread, Jean Valjean gradually hardened into a tough convict. No one could beat him in a fistfight. No one could break his will. At last, Valjean earned his release. Convicts in those days had to carry identity cards, however, and no innkeeper would let a dangerous felon spend the night. 
For four days, he wandered the village roads, seeking shelter against the weather until finally a kindly bishop had mercy on him. That night, Jean Valjean lay still in an overcomfortable bed until the bishop and his sister drifted off to sleep. He rose from the bed, rummaging through the cupboard for the family silver and crept off into the darkness. The next morning, three policemen knocked on the bishop's door with Valjean in tow. They had caught the convict in flight and uh, in the stolen silver and were ready to put the scoundrel in chains for life. The bishop responded in a way that no one, especially Jean Valjean, expected. So you are here, he cried to Valjean. I'm delighted to see you. Had you forgotten that I gave you the candlesticks as well? They're silver like the rest, and they're worth about 200 francs. Did you forget to take them? Jean Valjean's eyes widened. He was now staring at the old man with an expression no words can convey. Valjean was no thief, the bishop assured the police. The silver was my gift to him. When the police withdrew, the bishop gave the candlesticks to his guests, now speechless and trembling. Do not forget. Do not ever forget, said the bishop, that you have promised me to use the money to make yourself an honest man. The power of the bishop's act, defying every human instinct for revenge, changed John Valjean's life forever. A naked encounter with mercy, grace, and patience melted the granite defenses of his soul. He kept the candlesticks as a precious memento of grace and dedicated himself from then on to helping others in need. I think that's exactly what Paul is talking about in Ephesians 2.10, where he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God always pours out his mercy, grace, and patience on people so that they can be his conduit of mercy, grace, and patience to others. Always. Remember Abraham. He blessed Abraham. Why? So that he could be a blessing. And so it goes throughout all the story of the Bible. But the great thing is, remember, we talked about his grace, mercy, and patience is his goodness expressed in different contexts. In our misery and distress, we deserve judgment. He gives us favor and goodness, and he withholds his judgment. Why? So that we can do good works. We receive his goodness so that we can do good works. But it's not good works as a lot of good works are done. A lot of good works in religious circles are done to earn God's favor. But remember, there's nothing we could do. There's nothing we can do to earn God's favor. We were dead. He brought us to life through the redemption of Christ. There's nothing about our salvation that is dependent on us. It all depends on Christ. So why do we do good works? Because we're freed to. (laughs) He gave us everything. He's freed us from the burden of trying to earn our salvation or prove ourselves. He's proven our worth through Christ. And so we're free to live our lives for others and walk in the good works that he's prepared in advance for us to do. And I, I love that concept. I don't know about you, but it excites me that before I was even born, God prepared good works for me, David Ham, to do. Particular good works, this being one of them. Three o'clock this morning, I wasn't so sure. Uh, but, but it's the same as for you. God has created good works for you to do. It doesn't mean you're going to go in vocational ministry or even preach. But what it does mean is 
that we wake up every morning as believers, as followers of Christ, and say, Lord, thank you for your mercy, grace, and patience. I need them. Fill me today with your spirit. Give me eyes to see, ears to hear, a mind to understand, a heart to believe. And Lord, show me by your grace the good works that you have called me to do. Our God is a God of grace and mercy and patience. As the psalmist declares, Psalm 145.8, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And as we've seen, God's mercy means his goodness towards those in misery and distress. His grace is his goodness towards those who deserve only punishment. His patience is his goodness in withholding punishment to those who continue to sin over a period of time. Are you in misery and distress this morning? God has mercy for you. He longs to meet you in your misery and distress with goodness. He's proved that through the cross of Christ. We pray for him to meet you here this morning. If you're in Christ and the verdict of your conscience doesn't match up with the verdict of heaven, ask him to give you eyes to see through his spirit, ears to hear, a mind to understand, a heart to believe the truth of the gospel. That your salvation has nothing to do about you and your failings. That no matter where you are, he is a God who can save. He's a God who can break every stronghold. He is a God who has a great plan and good works for you to do. Pray that he would align the spirit of your conscience with the court of heaven. If you're not in Christ... And these verses seem harsh to you. Pray, the invitation is, come drink of the mercy and the grace and the patience of our God. The psalmist invites us to taste and see that the Lord is good. Invite you to taste and see that our God is a God of mercy, of grace, and of patience. And in fact, he's patient with you. He brought you here this morning. Second Peter 3, 8-9 through 9 says this, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Our God stands this morning and invites you to repent and come to taste of his grace and mercy. For all of us, the closing passage is Hebrews 4. 14 through 16, where the author of Hebrews gives us this invitation. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Thank you for listening to audio from Norris Ferry Community Church located in Shreveport, Louisiana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Norris Ferry Community Church, please visit us online at norrisferrychurch.org.